Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, I have a conversation with spatial ecologist Ben Sullender. What is a spatial ecologist, you might ask? Good question. Spatial ecology is the study and understanding of a place using maps. Meaning scientists like Ben use topography to look at how small differences in landscape affect every part of life. From the migratory patterns of birds to the melting of the Arctic Ocean sea ice and how it significantly changes our ability to live on land. Okay, this is the part of the intro where I give a shout out to the Crude Company men. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, Sharon Liska, and Scott Liska. Thank you to everyone for your support. This podcast would not be possible without you. If you'd like to subscribe and help this podcast keep going, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. And if you have a chance, a review on iTunes also helps out a lot. Okay, back to Ben Solander. Everything we talk about in this conversation, be it coastal environments, bird migration, Bering Strait ship traffic, or sea life, climate change was always at the heart of the issue. The climate is changing, and Alaska is, in many ways, ground zero for observation. That's a big reason Ben moved here to help report the many ecological changes occurring in Alaska, and also to be among the wildness of Alaska. So here he is, Ben Solander. Mike is hot. Mike's hot. Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! All right, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, perfect. So, how's it going, Ben? Good. How about you? I'm good. So, what is going on in the world of spatial ecology? <laughs> so much is going on in the world of spatial ecology. Uh, let me tell you. Um, Alaska is a super cool place to work, and it's especially a cool place to work for spatial ecology. So, to sort of like introduce you to the, the concept, spatial ecology is sort of like... Uh, it's sort of telling the story of a place using maps and looking at how things change over a landscape. And so this is, you know, Alaska is the perfect place for that because Alaska is so big. We've got so many different habitat types. Um, you know, you look at just from Anchorage, you've got these like coastal mud flats where, you know, you got some salt water coming in. You got some, you know, bird species out there. And then you get into the city, you get a few more trees, and then you get up right into the foothills, and all of a sudden you're way in the alpine, starting to buy like ptarmigan and snowfields, and you push back a little further, you got glaciers. So even just right here in our backyard, you got a ton of different stuff going on. And so what spatial ecology does is sort of like helps communicate what's going on with all these different places and sort of links them together, um, trying to tell what a place is using a bunch of different visuals that sort of represent what's going on. Right on. That sounds pretty complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds complicated, but honestly, what it boils down to is just finding a way to represent what you see around you in a different way. So in that way, it's it's kind of like art. There's sort of like this creative process. It's like, so, so what does this landscape mean to me? Um, 
I think a lot about mountains and the way to like represent those on a map. And it's it's super hard uh, trying to communicate about places that you've never been. So I think it's a really big priority of mine to get out into all these landscapes and see what's going on. So a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is based in the Arctic, so north of the Brooks Range. And uh, that is such a cool landscape. But what happens up there is it's uh, there's not a ton of mountains. There's like really small little you know, gaps in topography where, you know, you go drop down to like a riverbank and you get back up to the uplands and the tundra. But those tiny little changes matter a ton for the different species that live there. You know, it's a little bit of shelter from the wind. You're getting out of the wind, even if it's only like a foot drop, that's still really big um, for all the different critters that, that call those places home. So trying to find a way to like communicate that and say, okay, this isn't as big as in this massive mountain range, but these tiny little changes do add up. They stack up into something really significant for the species that, that call this place home. So you're talking about how topography can change like in short distances? Exactly, yeah. I mean, what kind of animals are we, we seeing in those kind of short differences or I guess the differences in the animals? Yeah, so there's there's a ton of different ones. So I think um, polar bears are a pretty good example of them in terms of like using those really small like topographic distances. So so the North Slope of Alaska, it's basically like a desert climate. You know, you think about it as this big snowy place, um, super cold, dark in the winter for sure when the sun sets and doesn't doesn't rise for a couple months. But in the winter, all that snow is basically drifted around and blown around from different places. So not all that falls. So what's really interesting is that in order to take advantage of the snow, so snow is like a really good insulator, right? So you have a lot of like bears will tunnel in and, and dig a little pit or you'll have little um, like Arctic ground squirrels will tunnel into the snow and use that as, you know, an insulating barrier uh, in the same way that, you know, we dig a snow cave or build an igloo or something like that. So, so creatures are using the snow in the exact same way, um, but there's so little snow up there, this wind drift, so these, these little topographic features collect the snow as it's blowing over. It's the same deal with like a cornice or a wind lip, like on a ski run, it's mm-hmm. that little feature is so important. And so what polar bears will do is they'll figure out where these little wind lips are and they'll be able to tunnel in there and then use just those spots as dens. So within a river, one side of the bank, you'll find no polar bears at all. And on the other side, you'll see a couple different dens like right there, because that is the spot where all of a sudden this two foot gap where, you know, the tundra drops down to to river, all of a sudden that allows the snow to start filling in that place. And polar bears totally key in on that that little feature. Same deal with, uh, with caribou and then for birds as well. So thinking about the Arctic, birds come up there from all over the world. So they're embarking on these crazy, super long journeys, traveling thousands of miles to get up there. It takes them most of a year to get up there. They're basically constantly in motion. And so when they arrive, they need food right then. Like they're starving. They need something to eat. And so what happens is these different topographic distances, they, uh, they trap snow in different ways and, you know, focus light in different ways. So that you'll have like a southern facing part and all of a sudden that will get a bunch of sun and then that'll melt out the snow. And so all of a sudden that's ready first. And so birds will pounce on that like one little spot of green food. They'll be right there. And then, you know, a couple weeks later, uh, all of a sudden the sun is enough to melt out the northern aspects of that same little feature. And so all of a sudden the birds will switch over to that side. So these little topographic differences mean that, that the different sources of food come online at different periods of time. And so the birds are really able to capitalize that and sort of jump all over the place. But it's just, it's so fascinating, just like these really small distances, these really small vertical relief sections 
that basically tells the whole story of what's important up there. And so you can look at these these little microcosms and kind of like extrapolate them to the to the land at large. Yeah, and so extrapolating from those microcosms is um, it's super hard to to do because there's all these different processes that are going on, right? So it's if you look at one individual, you know, one square foot on the tundra, you might see, you know, six inches mat makes a huge difference there. And then when you look at like a slightly bigger, you know, 100 square foot section, all of a sudden that six inches is, is good, but there's an even better place over here. And then you scale up even further. So you sort of zoom out even more. And then you realize, okay, well, birds really come to this one place. It's, you know, that's their home. So every year they finish migration, they come to the same exact spot. It's called uh, site fidelity. They just key in on this one little zone. So if, it's, if there's habitat outside of the zone where they're used to going, there's a chance that like a bird might not discover that for some species. And so thinking about all those different factors, it's all these different factors that are at work at different scales. And so I think about this as sort of like it's a spatial scaling problem, right? It's like you have to understand what's going on, the really, really nitty gritty, the finest scale in a matter of like inches and feet. And then you also have to think about what's happening at a much, much bigger scale across the whole landscape. And that's what I find really cool about spatial ecology is you got to figure out what the right scale to use is. Like, so how do you look at this landscape? What's the lens that you use? Um, to understand what's going on. And it changes constantly. It changes constantly. That is like, that is the only constant is that things are shifting season by season, especially in Alaska. There's so much variability, right? It's, you know, one winter you might have snow till June and then another year you might have everything melted out by, by April. And so it's, it's so different. It's so, things change so fast up here. Um, so trying to incorporate time into the equation too also adds another layer of complexity. So what happens when a certain area that say birds a certain species of birds goes to isn't there when they try to go to it in terms of that that certain area being like good for habitat and all of a sudden it's not um so birds are are pretty resilient critters i mean they'll they'll find a, a analogous spot somewhere else to a certain extent but what we see is especially with like the long distance migrants the timing of that food, I mean, it, they don't have a whole lot left. So if they come back to this spot, they're exhausted. Um, you think about there's this one species, uh, it's called the bar-tailed godwit. And they're like, you know, the size of, you know, between like a, a guinea pig and a hamster sized bird. They're like, they're really small. And they fly straight from Alaska to New Zealand one stop. Really? Like seven <laughs> days in the air flying. That's so, pretty gangster. Yeah, they're badass. <laughs> uh, so these tiny little birds, they gain like 50% body fat and they burn it all off while flying straight for, you know, a couple days on end. And so as soon as they land, they need food right then, right there. And if food's not available, you know, that might be it. That might be the end of their story. And so it, being able to key in on these different places. And so What's really cool to think about is like these migrations have been happening for so, so long, so many millennia, like birds know where good spots are. Birds wouldn't fly thousands and thousands of miles if it wasn't worth it in the end. You know, if they weren't getting to an awesome place, they wouldn't do it. They would just hang out, you know, stay in the tropics all year. Instead, they think there's something good. There's something special way up north, especially in Alaska. So they fly these huge distances to get back up here because they know that it's going to be good when they arrive. And... Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you know, sometimes they will lose habitat. And for a lot of birds that lose habitat, that might be that might be it. 
and so that's that's you know part of the sad story as well but it's uh, it's something that we definitely got to keep an eye on make sure that there's enough habitat for these long distance migrants so that when they land when they're exhausted there's a place there's a place that they've been relying on for you know generations and generations of birds that's still there for them is that a little bit where your job comes into play where you're like okay this is the area that they key into we need to preserve this area totally yeah and so that's exactly so this is the area that they key into um it's yeah different for different species some species are they have site fidelity like i was saying so it's like they key on this one specific zone and they come back there every single year um, and other species are are more general. So like greater white-fronted geese or like Canada geese, if they see a good spot, they'll just stop there. They'll just, you know, oh, this looks fine. And they'll they'll totally adjust their route based on what's available. So a lot of the challenge is just like figuring out what's important to the birds, why they come to these certain places. Um, the other thing that's happening is climate change is shifting everything that we know about the landscape. We think about some of the erosion rates up there on the coastline. Stuff's going like 20 feet a year is that just shoreline just gets disintegrated, just ripped away by storms and by waves on the Arctic coast. And that changes a ton. So a lot of the birds key on on the shorelines are oftentimes like the most productive habitat right by the coast. It's sort of like the convergence of a couple different ecosystems. You've got like the rivers carrying all like the nutrients from the tundra out and you've got the ocean blowing all, you know, the, the deep water current and the nutrients coming into these, you know, near shore lagoons. And so as well as like a lot of the fish that come in to spawn in the freshwater as well. Um, so it's sort of this convergence of everything. And unfortunately, that like really awesome place to be is also probably the area that's changing the most. So you're looking at huge erosion rates as saltwater comes in. If saltwater gets into like a freshwater lake, that totally changes it. That totally changes what organisms live there, what fish do there, uh, what birds are able to forage there. That that changes everything. And so what we're seeing is that climate change is, is adding a whole nother layer to what's going on. So it's not just what was important for these birds and what has been important for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's what might still be important. And the challenge is we don't know the time scales that we're dealing with. If, if that's 10 years, if that's 100 years, it's, it's trying to hit a moving target. But luckily, there's, there's certain things that we can do to key in on, uh, on the features that the birds are, are really looking for and trying to identify what potential change would be. So it kind of sounds like what you're saying is right now, a lot of your job is kind of damage control. Yeah, some of it's damage control. I think, luckily enough, in Alaska, we have a lot of these good places left. And that's awesome. And I think that's something that, that people can do. Like that's that's why I moved up here is because we've got these huge landscapes, um, these huge landscapes, just room to roam, tons of great habitat for a ton of different species. Um, that's why we see such a huge tourist boom in the in the summer. People want to check out these wild landscapes. And so we have so many of these places in Alaska, and that's what makes it special. But at the same time, you look at the lower 48, these wilderness areas are disappearing so fast. There's not a ton left. So all of a sudden, a bird that might be able to, you know, they, you know, their great, 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 great grandparents of birds on their migratory journeys, they were able to stop in, you know, a dozen different awesome places. All of a sudden, some of those get, you know, paved over, turned into apartment buildings or turned into farms that might not have the same habitat values or the same amount of food. All of a sudden, they go from a dozen awesome stopover sites to a handful, like two or three. So when they come to Alaska, they are especially reliant on being able to quickly gain that, that body mass. 
And so that makes Alaska even more important in the face of such a changing landscape, especially in the lower 48. So you said that when you came up to Alaska, or that's why you came up to Alaska, where were you before this? Sure. So I I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts uh, on the East Coast. And uh, yeah, growing up, I was always sort of like poking around in the woods, carrying my snowboard on my back, trying to like see what, you know, these little hills were out there. But it was really, everything was sort of paved over. Um, It was sort of developed. You could drive from like the city of Boston, you know, for hours and hours and hours, and you just pass suburbs and suburbs and suburbs and suburbs. It was a cool place to grow up. But the challenge is that it's sort of, I was looking for something different, something a little bigger. Um, So I went to school out in the Midwest, and it was a little bit bigger out there, little more, little more wildernessy areas, especially like northern Minnesota is sweet. But then it um, just kept looking for, for bigger and bigger wilderness places to explore. And that sort of brought me to Alaska. And when I got up here, I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is where it's at. This is these huge, massive places that are so important, not just for like birds and, and bears and other other critters, but also for people. It's just having the room to roam is so important. It's so important to be able to just get out there and explore these places. And so, yeah, when we're speaking about the values of these places for, for habitat and all these different, you know, how climate change might impact a landscape. You're also thinking about what that what that means for people um, and what that means for people being able to get out there and enjoy these places and be able to build connections with these places as well. And so you were in, you're in Boston and then you went to the Midwest, correct? Mm-hmm. Did you do any studies there on, you know, spatial ecology? What kind of issues are they having there? Yeah, so I went to um, I went to undergrad at a small school called Carleton in Minnesota, um, and then I went to grad school in Wisconsin and Madison. And uh, yeah, while I was in Madison, I was working on a couple different. There's a sort of a spatial prioritization exercise, which is just a fancy way of saying what's important on a landscape. And it was a really cool exercise. But now thinking back on it, it's like we're focusing, we're putting so much value on this one tiny little like seasonal pond in someone's backyard. So it's, you know, we're putting all this value. It's like, oh my God, it's two acres of like untouched land. We got to protect that. That's so important. We got to make sure that stays, you know, in conservation and doesn't get turned into like a, a subdevelopment or a big apartment complex. It's very like uh, Henry David Thoreau. Yeah. <laughs> like this, Walden's Pond, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that's actually, uh, I'm from Concord, Mass, which is where Walden Pond is actually. Okay. So yeah, so that was like a big influence growing up was just like reading about how he was interacting with this. So yeah, it's exact, exactly the same story. Just checking out this one place, figuring out what's important about it, what's cool about it, and sort of describing that. But the challenge for me was, especially like in, in the East Coast and a little bit, you know, as well in the Midwest, it's like describing what's important. You're keying into such small things, whereas in Alaska, you're still talking about millions of acres. And that's what makes this place special is, you know, we haven't lost all that stuff yet. You know, I've, I've lived in the lower 48. I've seen like what passes for like a wilderness area, like wilderness trail system, you know, the biggest hike that you can do without seeing a house or whatever compared to what you get into up here. It's just, you know, it's a totally different world. And that, yeah, that makes Alaska super special. So this is kind of your white whale. This is my white whale. <laughs> yeah, although I don't think I'm going to hunt this white whale. I think I'm just going to sort of appreciate it and, and chill with it. <laughs> and map it. <laughs> and map it, exactly. <laughs> you know. So yep. you sent me a few emails, one of which 
had links to projects and articles having to do with things like bird migration, traffic in the Bering Sea, regulations regarding that traffic, and how climate change is affecting all of it. I guess you already answered some of these questions, namely like how climate change is affecting all of it, but maybe maybe how is climate change affecting ship traffic in the in the Bering Straits? I know you you do some research regarding that. Yeah, totally. And uh, I'll definitely refer you to our website is uh, ak.audubon.org. And we have tons of details there. We just try to be a resource for people to help, you know, share the information about what's happening out there in in our awesome state and the waters around it. So yeah, so one of the things you'll see on our website is uh, some of the work that we've been doing in the Bering Strait. So you probably have heard a lot of of media, a lot of coverage about um, melting Arctic Ocean. And that's a big deal, not just for climate in terms of like feedbacks, in terms of, you know, significantly changing people's ability to live on the landscape up there. And also thinking about what that means for for commerce. And as the Arctic Ocean melts, that's going to be the fastest way for vessels to get from basically Asia to Europe. So rather than having to go all the way down to the Panama Canal or all the way south of South America versus like duck through like the Mediterranean Sea, the Suez Canal and the Mediterranean Sea, they're going to be able to just zip straight across the Arctic Ocean as that ice continues to melt. And so that's going to bring a huge influx of of vessels into this area that otherwise hasn't seen a ton of vessel traffic. So this is relatively new. This is super new, yeah. And so a couple years ago, we saw the Crystal Serenity, which was a cruise ship that went through the Arctic. And that was the, you know, the first one that's ever been done that's gone through the Arctic. Uh, we really? see, Yeah, we see a, a ton of, you know, the cruise traffic in Southeast and how that changes community. That brings in a lot of jobs. That also brings a lot of challenging conversations about, you know, what do we do? Can, can a community of 200 people support cruise ships bringing tens of thousands of people per day? And so that raises a lot of really tricky questions that, that people have to wrestle with. From a spatial ecology side, I, I try to think about like the spatial impact. So cruise ships or really any vessel, any large vessel is going to bring a lot of impacts into that area. So some things are like the risk of an oil spill. Like if a ship hits a rock, hits a coast, like their engine, uh, their engine goes kaput and they just start to drift into shore, there's a, a really high potential for an oil spill. And the problem is we just don't have resources to respond up there. The closest Coast Guard station is down in Kodiak. So if something happens way up, you know, in the Bering Strait, that's going to be a long journey for any Coast Guard yeah. support to be able to get there. So that's that's one of the big things. And it, it does happen. There have been a couple really bad shipwrecks in the Bering Sea. Look at the Selendang IU and, um, yeah, the Kuroshima. There's a couple of different vessels that have just sort of broken apart. They have engine trouble, and then the currents are so intense, the storms are so intense, they just get pushed aground before they can do anything about it. And is that where they stay? The shipwrecks? Yeah. Yeah, the ships just, they run aground, and then they break apart, and that's that's where they are. There's no cleanup crew or anything? Or? They, they bring the cleanup crew up there, but a lot of times it's too late. I mean, you think about how fast you need to get out there before, you know, so you think about, um, you know, if a ship has like a bunch of soybeans on board, to try to contain those, you need to get there before the current moves those around, before the storm moves those around. And so soybeans are kind of like innocuous. They're not that big of a deal. You think about oil. So if you have like an oil tanker, all of a sudden you've got like an Exxon Valdez amount of oil out there, but you don't have the port of Valdez. You don't have Whittier right there able to respond. All of a sudden you're looking at rather than hours, you're looking at days or weeks before someone can actually get there and help out. 
And so, so oil spills and like the, the threat of shipwreck, like that's bad for everybody involved. Um, there's also like a, a relatively like low chance that that will happen, but it is something that we need to prepare for. Otherwise, it could be totally catastrophic. So another aspect of, of vessel traffic is these impacts that happen no matter what. One of those is thinking about uh, noise. So there is Which some... is, I think, something that people don't even really think about. Exactly. Yeah. Because, I mean, you hear the big engines when you're on the ship, but if you, if you see one, you know, on the horizon, you don't really think about it. You're like, oh, yeah, it's just a ship. Yeah. Um, you stick your head underwater, you will feel differently about it, I guarantee. Have um, you done that? Uh, you can. I mean, just, yeah, hanging out in the water, not up here, but like on the East Coast. Okay. Uh, anywhere where the water's warm enough to hang out down there. <laughs> You've stuck your head in the water and listened to the ships. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they are loud. So the, the creatures that don't have a chance, that, that have to be underwater, so you think about whales, all of a sudden they're there. They're used to a totally silent environment. So they can, you know, sing songs like humpback whales. They can hang out with their buddies. They communicate to their buddies like, oh, hey, there's fish over here. Come over here. Hang out over here. Or like, hey, I'm going to migrate down to Hawaii. Let's go. Uh, all these natural like communication features that they're relying on, like a pretty quiet ocean, that goes out the window. As soon as you have more and more vessels coming through the area, they're going to start basically reducing, they're basically going to elevate that that noise. You think about how easy it is to have a conversation with someone, you know, on the side of the Seward Highway versus in your backyard, you know, around mm-hmm. a grill or something like that. It's the same deal for, uh, for all these marine mammals that rely on sound to communicate. And especially you think about, you know, bowhead whales, these massive whales, they live to be a couple hundred years old. They're still finding like harpoon heads from the 1900s inside bowhead whales. Jeez. Um, and so it is, these creatures have been around long before there were, there were engines up there in their environment. So you think about what that challenge is like over the course of this animal's lifetime, it's gone from a totally quiet ocean to something that's super noisy that's fundamentally changing the way that they interact with their environment. Do we know how those animals interpret that sound? There's a couple different things that we can do. Um, so this is still a super new area of study. Um, but what you can do is you can like watch a whale and see how it responds. What you'll see a lot of times is the whale swims away. So that's sort of avoidance. Other times the whale isn't able to move away in time. Uh, and you do see things like ship strikes where a ship runs into a whale straight up. And there's a lot of evidence that we see of whales that get hit and survive, but there's also a ton of whales that, that don't make it. And so we see, we see that happening a lot in, in busier areas. Um, I talk a lot about the East Coast because that's sort of, you know, my background. Um, yeah. But we have definitely there have been um, a lot of ship strikes that have, that, you know, kill a really high percentage of whales out there. And so some of the things that the Coast Guard has done is looked at speed limits and things like that. And those turn out that those are really effective. If you have a ship that's moving really fast, a whale is pretty slow moving. They can't really figure out how to avoid it. But if you have a ship all of a sudden moving at a whale's pace, the whale's like, okay, I understand where this guy's going. He's going straight that way. If I go to the right, I can avoid him. No problem. And so you think about these different you know, practices, these sort of management strategies. And that's sort of what we're looking at in the Arctic Ocean to help with this. It's First off, identifying these areas that are so ecologically important that, you know, if a ship goes in there, they have a really high chance of like striking a whale or hitting a walrus or something like that, or even just, you know, displacing a ton of birds that are trying to forage in this area that are sort of diving underwater, trying to catch fish and things like that. So if we can identify those huge, like huge concentration, those hot spots, 
and say, okay, ships probably shouldn't go here. We recommend that they go a different route. That's one component. And another component is sort of these management strategies saying, okay, maybe a speed limit is you know, the best, best possible solution here to be able to minimize that impact on whales. Do we know how it affects animals on land? The sound? Yeah, the sound is not going to be a huge impact for, for critters on land. You do think about, so again, the worst case scenario of like an oil spill from a ship, like that's going to get washed onto the beach. And there's still areas in Prince William Sound um, from the Exxon Valdez where there's still oil in the sand and they've just decided they're not going to clean it up because as soon as they start excavating that dirt, they're going to expose that oil and bring that oil back into the marine ecosystem. So there are areas that are just, they know there's oil there. They just are not going to clean it up because it doesn't make sense to do so. And so that definitely impacts those coastal areas. And I was talking earlier, like the coastal areas are, are sort of where it all happens. It sort of stitches everything together. It stitches the rivers bringing terrestrial nutrients out there, the marine nutrients coming ashore. That's sort of like the convergence of all these, of all these you know, really productive systems. And so you introduce oil into those really special areas. Birds are still going to go there. They're still going to migrate there because that's what they're used to doing. Mammals are also going to go hang out in those same exact areas. And all of a sudden, if you've got oil there, that's bad. Um, there's nothing a bird can do to, to get rid of oil once it's, once it's been oiled. So you talk about coastal areas. There's a lot of coast in Alaska. Maybe let's talk a little bit about that. Like, What do you focus on as far as coastal areas go? Yeah, so we, we focus on a lot of different coastal areas. One of the things that we really focus on is, is trying to increase connectivity or maintain connectivity. So this is something uh, we've done a little bit of work on, on the Kenai Peninsula as well with uh, the Ketchumac Heritage Land Trust down there, as well as the, the Fish and Wildlife Service with the Refuge down there. And what they're focusing on is trying to create these corridors and basically just maintain a river so that, you know, salmon, as a really good focal species, salmon can still make it up to their natural spawning habitat as well as having lots of what's called riparian or riverside habitat along the way for the other creatures that love hanging out along that corridor. And so by allowing these corridors to still exist, you're still allowing species to be able to get up high in the mountains when it's super hot in the summer. They don't do well in the lowland hot areas. They're able to get up, escape from that heat. And then by having a quarter, they're going to be able to migrate down and so seasonally continue accessing the habitats that they need. And so we, we work on this a lot, sort of everywhere that we go. We think about, we do some work in southeast Alaska in the Tongass National Forest. Think about the importance of salmon. Um, the Tongass Forest is called the Salmon Forest because you know, salmon come up there in huge numbers and bears eat them or pick them out of the river. And sometimes a, a very well-fed bear will maybe just scoop out the eggs of a female salmon and then just leave the body to just sort of decompose. And all of those nutrients go cycle back into the forest. And really, that's the reason that there's such huge trees. There's a, there's a lot of rain, really productive ecosystem, but it's really salmon fed. That's sort of where all the nutrients come from. And so if you take away the ability of salmon to get upstream, so if you're talking about building a dam or, you know, a mine tailings pond or something like that, uh, you really compromise the ability of the fish to get upstream. And so that's not just going to affect that fish. That's going to affect the bear, the bald eagle, the different scavengers that, that rely on that salmon, as well as, you know, the jumbo trees that sort of drive everything, these massive you know, multiple hundred-year-old trees that are that are providing essential habitat for that area. In addition to the fishermen who are going down there trying to fish in a, a really cool environment, catch some really big fish in a really wild place. 
So thinking about maintaining connectivity, um, to me, that's a pretty good way of thinking about the coast. It's, you know, the coast is not just this one little stretch of land. Um, when you think about what's important to a coast, you're talking about influence super far inland, um, as well as sort of connecting the much bigger marine ecosystem, these oceans to the the systems on land. You know, I, I can't help but notice that there's a common theme here, which is the detriment of humans. <laughs> you know, like like we're, we're causing all this stuff, um, which makes your job, like we need people like you to be able to point this stuff out. At what point, maybe it would come down to the census or how many people exist in the world, would make your job obsolete? <laughs> Man, that's a really, that's a tough question. Um, I don't know that I have an answer. I think one thing that we try to do is we look at people are part of the ecosystem, right? We're not, we're not this separate creature that's totally different, that should be analyzed totally differently. Like what we do has an impact um, and thinking about how that impact is part of the ecosystem. It doesn't just exist outside of that you know, the world around us sort of absorbs all of the pollution, all the different things that, that humans do. But humans are also like a really critical part of what's going on and what makes places like Alaska super special. It's people live out here. People explore these places. These places are important for people as well. And so people are part of the equation. We definitely consider people as part of that. People are a critical component of all of these different places. The challenge is thinking about when that sometimes goes a little too far or when especially actions of one person affect the what, you know, a hundred other people can do. So you think about maybe putting, you know, a mine in a certain area that might compromise the jobs of thousands and thousands of fishermen and that mine might only create a dozen jobs. So things like that, we need to make sure that we're thinking really critically about the long term impacts. But we definitely think about people as part, as a really integral part of, of these systems as well. I might be putting you on the spot here, but what communities does things like traffic in the Bering Strait affect? Sure. So um, I was just in Nome in November um, talking with some folks over at Kowarek and as well as a couple other agencies like NOAA has an office up there. What we're seeing is already absolutely crazy. We're seeing um, cruise ships are, are wanting to dock at Nome. So they're struggling to, to keep up with that capacity. They're trying to expand their ports, which is, you know, a huge, huge infrastructure investment and trying to figure out whether that economic, you know, equation is worth it to, to put all this money into expanding like their deep water port so that they can have more cruise ships. Is that going to pay off in the long term? I also heard some crazy stories about even the fishing season. So a lot of what's happening with climate change is um, it's the same deal that I was sort of talking about with mountains. It's um, basically creatures are going further and further away to have those same conditions. And so in the marine environment, they're going further and further north. So as the Bering Sea is heating up, as there's less and less sea ice, creatures are, fish especially, are trying to move up. So they're shifting their ranges. And so we're seeing a lot of the fish that used to be super abundant down in like the southern Bering Sea are now tracking their way up. And so it's like Pacific cod basically displacing Arctic cod. So Arctic cod, you know, really need these cold environments. And as that ice is melting off, they're sort of tracking that ice way up north into the Arctic Ocean. And so a lot of the fishermen are also, they're tracking the same exact species. 
So what we saw and known, we were talking with the harbor master, and he was saying that fishing vessels are now calling them up, trying to figure out what facilities they are, and they're thinking about using Nome as like their home base for the fishing season. So previously, all these boats were in and out of Dutch Harbor, was like the main one, and they'd go, you know, fuel up in Dutch Harbor, um, and then go out and fish, and that's sort of like their their main port of call. But they're finding themselves going so far north that Nome is actually the next closest place for them to go. And that is just crazy to think about. Yeah. All of a sudden you have fishing industry might be moving into this area. It's like it's this things these things are changing like before our eyes. It's crazy how fast these these shifts are happening. So what happens to Dutch Harbor then if fishing moves to Nome? <laughs> I don't think every single species of fish is going to be moving to Nome. I think Dutch will probably have a pretty resilient fishing industry as well. I think crabs are, are doing just fine where they're at. I think they might just be expanding. <laughs> they're chilling. They're ch- crabs are chilling. Fish are, <laughs> fish are out of there. Uh, no, it, it totally depends on, uh, yeah, what happens in the climate and how these, how these species respond to it. So every day is a new day for you. I mean, as far as, as what you're looking into I mean, if the climate is changing so quickly, right, and you're seeing all these these really drastic changes like fish that belong way more southern are being found way more northern. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that's pretty crazy, right? It is really crazy. And it, yeah, every day is sort of like a new day. Um, what's really cool is um, just trying to keep on top of what's happening in the scientific community. There is so much that we're, we just don't know about the world, and we're slowly teasing out these different facts of these these different stories. So like that that bar-tailed godwit, that little shorebird that flies straight from Alaska to New Zealand, one shot. We didn't know that until 2007. Um, really? There's other things like there's, uh, so south of St. Lawrence Island in the middle of the Bering Sea, there's a huge, the entire world's population of spectacled eiders goes and hangs out there in the winter. And the reason is because while everything else is icy, there's this one chunk of open water through this unique feature of currents and upwelling. It basically pushes the ice out of this one zone. And so there's this open water stretch in the middle of a totally frozen sea. And these birds have found it. And all these birds are in this one exact spot. So 100% of the world's population are right there. That's nuts. And we didn't know that until about 20 years ago when um, people, when biologists were flying over the area, they saw a bunch of specks out there and like, hey, what are those guys? Let's go check that out. Nobody was ever wondering, like, where'd all those birds go? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's a mystery. Um, Yeah. And so where'd all the birds go is like a really, it's a fun question to answer. And we're just... All these different technologies are coming online. Um, so you think about shorebirds, these really, really tiny birds that make these massive migrations. I was just talking with uh, a guy at Manimit um, who's figured out a way to attach these tiny little transceivers to these tiny little birds called semi-palmated sandpipers. And they go up to the Arctic Refuge, they nest in the Arctic Refuge, and then they migrate all the way down to Venezuela. They go all the way through through Canada, through the entire U.S. Sometimes they'll go straight through the Caribbean or like off the coast of Florida, and they go all the way down there. And we just had no idea where they went before he figured out how to attach these tiny little satellite tracker tags to these birds. And so as we're getting better and better at technology, it seems like phones keep getting bigger and bigger, but the technology is getting smaller and smaller. And so we're finally able to like attach these GPS locators to these birds. We're able to get them small enough where they're not going to mess with how the bird flies. We're finally able to understand these things. And so to me, that's one of the coolest things about working in Alaska. It's like, okay, all of a sudden all these birds arrive. Okay, where did this one come from? Where did this one come from? Where did this one come from? You know, you look around the landscape around you and you figure out that 
all these birds are coming to Alaska. They rely on Alaska for their breeding season, and then they go all over the world and go hang out in different places for the winter. And so starting to unpack all those different stories, that's one of the coolest parts of my job is starting to understand these huge stories that we're just now starting to figure out and then trying to like communicate that, figure out how to make a, a visual of that, how to make that map um, that shows all these different areas that are important to a bird across thousands and thousands of miles. You know, one thing that I was just thinking is if we're being affected by climate change, I think definitely much more than at least the continental United States, and we're being able to observe it here in Alaska, like pretty acutely, meaning that our summers are getting longer. How does that affect the birds? I mean, because they're inevitably going to hang out here longer, right? Uh, yeah, yes and no. It's um, it's a crazy combina- combination of things, and it gets... You know, as you expect, it does get complicated fast. Um, so one thing that happens is sometimes birds are getting two shots at breeding. So if they try raising a nest and all of a sudden, you know, a fox comes in and swoops their babies, they're able to try again. They're like, okay, we got another couple weeks. You know, let's let's do this again. Um, and so do they're over. Do over. Yeah. So it's like some <laughs> birds are getting a chance to to raise multiple or attempt to raise multiple young uh, in a given year. The challenge, though, is so. Migration is really complicated trying to figure out how people or how people, how birds and, uh, and like caribou and whales and all these different, you know, all these different wildlife species, how they decide when to migrate. And a lot of that, especially for birds, is based on what's called photo period, which is like how long the days are. And it's something that we key into, like, you know, it's dark in the winter, you know, oh, it's, you know, it must be December, it's, you know, sun setting at like 3 p.m. Like, okay, got it. And so as the days start to lengthen, you feel different. Like, it's super nice outside right now. We're going to go hang out outside all day. You know, hang out outside, grill until 11 p.m. It's all good. The sun's (laughs) still up. We're fine. And so birds key into those same exact photo cues. Um, And so they use that as timing for migration. So all of a sudden, as the days start getting longer and longer in the spring, they start feeling this, this urge to continue to start moving north. And so their migration cues are sort of based on that month. So what's happening with climate change is it's not, it doesn't change the months. December is still December. There's still like going to be the least amount of sunlight in the middle of December. Summer solstice is still going to have the most amount of daylight. That is not changing. Sure. Um, But what is changing is like you're saying, like it gets warmer for longer. Summers are longer. So rather than, you know, in the Arctic, the plants all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're starting to bloom in June. They might, that might be happening in a little bit earlier in May. So all of a sudden the plants are blooming earlier. But the birds aren't going to arrive until the same time that they've always arrived because they're based on, okay, June 10th, I'm going to be landing in the Arctic and I'm going to start my nest on June 11th. And then, you know, July 15th, I'm out of there. So if birds are arriving on June 10th every single year, all of a sudden the plants have already been around for a while. There's already insects. There's all these other things that have already been happening. So they're stoked. They're stoked, but also (laughs) they might miss that that spring boom, you know? Okay, okay. Uh, So thinking about... When plants are starting to grow, um, so you think about like like Devil's Club. Uh, so Devil's Club sucks in the middle of the summer. It's like really spiky, really not fun to deal with. But if you get it right now, you can pick the Devil's Club buds, and those are actually pretty tasty. You just got to get them before the spikes harden. And so it's the same exact deal. As plants are growing, you want to get them early in their stages as they're growing, and that's where they're going to have the most nutrients. And so birds and caribou are keen in on those times. The challenge is that when they migrate is no longer be going to be synced with when those plants are in prime time. 
And so that sort of, that's called, the fancy word for that is phenological mismatch. And so that's the idea that when birds arrive is no longer synced with the resource peak. And that could be a potential problem. We're trying to keep an eye on what that actually means in the Arctic. Do you have an example of why that's a problem? And what happens? Yeah, so what happens, um, so it was just a paper that I was reading actually yesterday with uh, some folks from Fish and Wildlife Service just published this, um, thinking about how phenological mismatch is affecting shorebirds. And so these birds are relying on peaks of insects. So when they arrive, they need to have tons of mosquitoes around because when their babies hatch, their babies have to be able to basically stumble out of the nest and into a swarm of mosquitoes, and then they can start eating them everywhere. <laughs> if there's so all of a sudden those those mosquitoes aren't there anymore, the young really don't have enough to eat. And so they're going to suffer. They might starve to death. They might not make it. And so it's really important that when they arrive and when these babies hatch, especially the hatch date has to correspond with an insect peak. And so what's happening is as things are getting greener, as snow is melting, we're getting more and more insects that are peaking earlier and earlier. And so all of a sudden, if you have this huge mosquito boom, But then the mosquito population collapses and then a week later the chicks are born and all of a sudden you don't have that many mosquitoes anymore. You run out of food to eat. And so that's the sort of challenges that the birds and all sorts of migratory species are running into, especially up there in the the Arctic. Okay, so you're up there, you're up north, observing and collecting data, right? Mm -hmm. What's been your experience when you go to these areas being affected, whether it's bird migration or subsistence hunting? Yeah, so I think one thing is it's sort of a the shifting baseline scenario. It's when I go up there for the first time, that is what I think of as normal for that area. But people who actually live there and have lived there and have lived there for generations, those are the people who actually understand what's going on. So I am an outsider scientist. I am, you know, behind a computer most of the time, reading these papers, reading about what's going on. And in terms of actually like personally understanding the changes that are happening, I think the people who live there are the ones who understand that best. And so that's why it's, it's super important to make sure that the, those voices are the ones that are driving these decisions that are being made um, in addition to the usual you know, scientific information. So that's, that's the one thing is when I go up there, I try to just listen and see what's happening. I think that's the most important thing that we can do is listen to the people who are there. Listen to the people who rely on these areas. Listen to the people who rely on the species that migrate around these areas. And that's, yeah, that's, that's the most important thing that we can do, I think. So do you have a process or when you go up there with a the crew, do you have a process where you go in and maybe you collect the data first and then talk to the people or... Are they interviews or what's the structure? Um, so I don't actually get up there that much on my own. So a lot of what I do okay. is uh, is piecing together the data that, that other people collect and then figuring out how that data fits together into, into a story. So a lot of these biologists from organizations like um, U.S. Geological Survey or Fish and Wildlife Survey, these are the people who are actually out there on the ground collecting these data. And so... Um, sort of what I see is my job is is translating what they're doing and they're running all these super intense statistics they're doing all these you know controlled surveys you know double observer methods detectability studies all these different things and sort of what I'm doing with that is trying to line that up and figure out how to translate that into terms that people can understand and say okay 
this idea of phenological mismatch, this is what this means. This is what this means to everybody. So people understand what's going on. So people have the opportunity to, to learn about what's going on and, and sort of put that into their own words. And especially for me, thinking about how to make that into a visual in terms of, you know, the spatial story of, of a place. So in a perfect world, how does this information, this data that you're collecting, reach people and affect change? Man, that's the million-dollar question, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're trying to figure it out right here. (laughs) All right, let's do it. (laughs) Um, I think it's, it's really important to listen. I think that's the biggest thing is you can't have your ears closed. You have to have an open mind. You have to be willing to listen to what people are saying and be able to figure out, oh, yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds, you know, that resonates with my own personal experience of what's going on. I think deciding how you feel about an issue before you hear the facts, before you hear the science, before you hear how communities are acting in this in this given situation, deciding before you have all that information is the most dangerous thing you can do. I think you need to be able to carefully consider things, be able to look at it objectively, be able to look at all the different facts. And so when you say, okay, this this individual project, this might interrupt habitat for this thousand acres that'll affect you know, this bird species, this bird species, it'll displace this number of caribou, um, might be bad for bowhead whales offshore as well. You want to make sure that you're able to listen to all of that information so that when you're making that decision, all the science, all the community voices, everything is part of that decision. And so I think that's, that's the biggest challenge. And that's the biggest thing that we need to do going forward is making sure that these big policy decision-making conversations they happen objectively, and it's more of a give and take. You're listening to people rather than coming and trying to tell people what you think you should do in a given situation. So when you encounter these these people, these, uh, I guess, doubters, yeah. how do you not necessarily convince them, but present them with all the data in order for them to, or at least your findings, maybe you're not giving them data. <laughs> that might be a little confusing. But, you know, you're presenting them with with, with these, uh, these anecdotes or these observations um, in a way that, you know, they can decide for themselves. I think it, it starts, you have, to, you have to figure out where they're at. You have to figure out what information they're using to inform their beliefs. And sometimes it's something new that you haven't thought of. The way that I think about things is not perfect. What The way that I think about things and my personal opinions on, you know, whether a project should go forward or, you know, what's happening in a given scientific situation, that's all subject to change. As I figure out new information, I'll be like, okay, I guess barrier islands are changing no matter what. That's that's fine. That's coastal erosion. That's part of the process. So erosion is not necessarily a bad thing on a barrier island. It just means that it's shifting locations. And that to me was something that was, you know, it was like, oh, erosion's bad. That's permanently changing everything. And it's like, no, it's actually part of the natural process for some landforms up there on the coast in the Arctic. And so I think starting from, you know, carefully considering where people are coming from, you're able to figure out to boil it down to that one thing. And sometimes that's, well, this person said that it was the case, and I believe that to be the case. And when it comes down to that, you can say, okay, but have you considered this? So climate change is like, it's the biggest one. It's happening. There's evidence of that everywhere. You have to have Mm -hmm. your head in the sand to think that climate change is not happening. It's not something that you choose to believe in. It's a given. And so the biggest thing you can do is say, okay, do you remember what winters were like when you were a kid? Do you remember what winters are like now? Yeah. Do you see a significant change there? I think asking for people's personal perspectives and personal experiences 
is you have to be lying to yourself in order to say that things have not been changing. You have to be deliberately, you know, have blinders on to say that, you know, the world is not changing, climate is not changing. That is, and so being able to, to connect with people and understand where they're coming from and then ask them to, to use their own personal beliefs, that's sort of like, I think that's the way you go about making change and helping people change opinions. But again, you know, that's the million dollar question. If, if we could do that, if we get everyone on the same page, we do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's super hard to do. You know, I've talked to a lot of people. And one thing that I've noticed is that when someone gets into a career like yours, it's usually based on some personal philosophy or some drive to make, you know, the world a better place or, or more understandable. What was your motivation for getting into spatial ecology, uh, man, that's a yeah. It's quite quite a journey, I guess. Um, it was sort of figuring out that these wild places matter a lot to me. So yeah, going back to yeah, growing up on the East Coast, there's sort of this history of conservation of you know Walden Pond being this special place, and I sort of got that in high school as you know hanging out at Walden Pond, seeing like okay, this is this is different, this is cool. And then going into college, I played soccer in college, and so that was my world. And it wasn't really until, you know, after college and into grad school, I was like, okay, you know, I need more. I need to be outside and realizing that, okay, camping, okay, hiking, especially like snowboarding and like backcountry backcountry skiing up here has been like such an important part of, of my life and sort of what drives me. And thinking about what makes those activities possible it's it's really the wild places that are special that that create these these awesome opportunities. So I was just up in the Alaska Range uh, with my partner Sarah doing a, a huge ski trip up there, and it was awesome. We were out there for eight days on a glacier, camping out, skiing every day, um, some storm days. But it's just like we were surrounded by this incredible, incredible, huge mountains, huge glaciers, amazing snowfields. It was just an otherworldly experience, and just being in this place, it's 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 hard to communicate that that specialness of a place. But you talk with anyone who's like skied Turnigan Pass, you know, on a powder day. It doesn't matter if you're in tin can trees with like tons of different people. Yeah, yeah. You're just being out there in the woods. Like that is the coolest experience. And so, understanding that that those places are a really important part of of my life. In addition to, you know, the, the work that I do in the city, you know, living in Anchorage, working in Anchorage, hanging out in my neighborhood, hanging out in my community. Um, it's also these these wild places that really make that special. And I think spatial analysis has the has gives me the opportunity to be able to say what I like about these places and why um, be able to tell that story with a map. And I think that that visual storytelling is really that's what that's what people understand more than all these scientific factoids or really intense statistical methods, things like that. It, it boils down to how you're telling the story of a place. And to me, understanding the wildness of a place and trying to communicate that to people, that's sort of, you know, what gives me a lot of joy in my job. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it would be pretty difficult to find a more perfect place where you have the intersection of both of those things, where the wildness as well as, you know, the urban than Anchorage. Exactly. Yeah. Everything's right in our backyard. You know, we are super lucky to have this huge chunk of land, you know, Chugach State Park right there, as well as this, you know, awesome green belt through, through the city. 
um, that's sort of what makes Anchorage special versus, you know, New York City where you've got these huge towering skyscrapers everywhere. I think most Alaskans would agree that that would be an oppressive place to live. I yeah. think these big open spaces are what, what makes Alaska special. The challenge is communicating how big they are. Um, talking about these massive areas that are super far away, thinking about like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, like that is that is a huge, huge place and trying to communicate the hugeness of that place, especially to someone who hasn't been there is just, it's super hard to do. And I think the best thing you can do as an Alaskan is get out there and explore and see for yourself what makes these places special and start to understand, okay, this is, this is a big deal. This is why we need to make sure that this area stays wild in the future. It's because it, it gives this feeling. So you came from Boston, um, which is a pretty big urban sprawl. Mm-hmm. How would you explain to maybe one of your buddies there that, that has always lived you know, <laughs> in, in that urban area, why conservation of these wild areas is important? Yeah, that's a that's a super good question. That's a conversation I have a ton with my yeah friends from high school back home. It's it's hard to do, but I think what's important is talking about like what makes it different. And I think people understand that difference. People don't want to do the same thing over and over again. And if you're when you're in the city, you're sort of in this in this I don't know in a grind, I guess. Um, and being able to, to disconnect from that and being able to find these wild places um, where you can just explore and, and be free, I think that is an experience that resonates with people no matter what. Just having this place where you can just be yourself and just hang out and enjoy with, you know, no pressures, that's that's a super important thing. And, you know, another thing is talking about the different species um, that, that live up here. Being able to say, oh, yeah, like I was, you know, late to work because a moose was in the middle of the trail. I had to wait for it to leave. It's like people (laughs) always find that stuff amazing. And just telling those stories to people from the lower 48 is like, oh, yeah, that is amazing. It is cool that I got stopped by a moose on my bike ride today. Like, that's totally fine. That's um, that's part of what makes Alaska special. Yeah. Well, this is this has been great. You know, uh, to wrap this up, we talked a lot about birds. Yeah. I was wondering if you know any bird calls. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh let's see. What can I do? Um the robin, we've been hearing a lot of robins. Um So that's that's your classic robin. And story. do they do they respond to that? Uh, yeah, they can. They're, they're pretty like territorial little guys. They're pretty aggressive. So you start doing that in your backyard, you might see a couple hop up on the branch and start heckling you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I wish I could do a good ptarmigan, but those guys sound hilarious. Um, but yeah, sadly I don't have those type of skills. (laughs) How about Uh, you, Cody? You got a good bird call? I don't think so. No, no. My, uh, my wife loves birds. And Uh so, uh, I think like morning doves, you know, yeah. like that, that, ooh, ooh, right? Isn't that There you them? go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You got a good morning dove. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, hey, it, this has been really awesome. Sweet. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to have to wrap my mind around all this stuff when I'm going <laughs> back through it. <laughs> Sweet. Well, sounds good. Cody, great talking with you, man. Yeah, Thanks you too, so man. much. Absolutely. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com crudemagazine. 
Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 